Good morning to Grace Spring family. I'm going to pull this up and be ready. So uh, my wife Brenda welcomed you at the front end of the service, and I want to echo things that she said, saying happy 4th of July week, end week. It's weird when it's on a Tuesday, right? Is it the weekend or is it the week? But uh, we're just so grateful, uh, again, uh, to be able to gather like this and freely bring our praises and freely talk about what God's Word says and uh, enjoy how our God has been so kind to us and gracious. So I hope you'll enjoy the the holiday with family or friends and just have a a really excellent week uh, this week as we celebrate our freedom. My name is Jim Mitchell, and uh, I serve as one of the pastors here alongside Brian, uh, executive pastor. And as Brenda mentioned, we've been here just about a year and just so, so thankful and grateful for this church family. It's been a real uh, redemptive thing for us to be loved so well and to be able to jump in and get to know you. And many of you we haven't met yet. I hope that'll just keep unfolding in the weeks and years to come, and, and we're grateful. Thrilled to be back in Michigan again. We were both born and raised in Michigan, and uh, I mean, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to say it wasn't an awesome life that the Lord gave us in Ohio, but it was Ohio for 30 years, right? And uh, raised our three sons there. Uh, but so good to be back here. In fact, the other day, uh, we were driving, I think we were up near Grand Rapids, and we were getting on the freeway, and I merged onto the freeway, and Brenda, Brenda says, wow, you did that just like a Michigan driver. And... <laughs> Like, I've, I did, this is the way I did it in Ohio, too, but it didn't work there. They don't know how to drive, <laughs> in case you ever noticed. So here, let me give you a clue of the difference, right? In Michigan, when you learn to drive and you're entering the freeway, if you're the car coming on, you have the right-of-way. You accelerate and you get on, and the people already on the freeway pay attention and let you on, right? Most of the time. In Ohio, it's bizarre, You get to the end of the ramp, and there's a yield sign, and the people who are already on the freeway ignore you, and you have to figure out how to get on. Well, I'm from Michigan. I just go blazing onto the freeway there, and everybody's honking and figuring out. It's just really crazy. It's almost like what we're going to see today where Jesus says, you've always heard, but I tell you this, I tried to tell them in Ohio how to get on the freeway. They all just ignored me. So it's good to be home. It's good to be back here, and it's a delight. So this is my very first time preaching here at Grace Spring, and uh, a little while back when when Pastor Brian said, uh, hey Jim, can you cover a a couple Sundays in the middle of the summer? I'm like, yeah, absolutely, no problem, be be really happy to. And then I looked at the topic that was going to be on my first day, and it's divorce and remarriage. So I said, thanks, Brian. (laughs) You know, last week he was up here speaking on the really tough topics of murder and anger and then adultery and lust. And he said, does anybody in the room want to be me right now? And uh, I was sitting over there going, yeah, wait till next week when it's me talking about divorce. So here we go. Awesome, uh, difficult topic, and yet uh, some really precious things for us to learn from God's words today. And we, while we, we can kind of sort of laugh at it that way, and perhaps a little even nervous laughter and awkward laughter, uh, I want to be quick to recognize that it's, this is a topic that likely hits really everybody in the room in a really personal way, right? Many among us are in blended families or in second marriages right now. And I'm sure for uh, some in the room or, or watching online today, uh, there are some painful stories of how a marriage was broken, either your own or, or perhaps that of your parents or your grandparents. Today's topic might even open some, some, some deep wounds of the heart or, or reawaken some, some regret that we, that we carry with us in the aftermath. 
Surely everyone has a family member somewhere in their tree or, of course, a close friend uh, that you love really dearly where uh, there's a, a painful story where marriage was broken, sometimes ultimately with a lot of great relief and thanksgiving, but, but sometimes with a lot of bitter sadness too. It's a hard thing. And for some, uh, these things aren't necessarily in the distant past either, uh, right? It could be something that's pretty fresh or might even be unfolding right now. So in all these circumstances, uh, the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be on every one of us, right? Every circumstance and every weeping. There's a beautiful uh, verse in the Psalms that says, the Father collects our tears in His bottle, and he, and he records them in His book. And that's His heart towards us today, wherever we may find ourselves in relationship to this, uh, this difficult topic of when marriages break apart. I would imagine also there's, in many cases, a lot of thanksgiving and things to be grateful for. To, renew, to know that uh, relief from cruelty and unfaithfulness, maybe harm or neglect and abuse has occurred through God's provision of divorce. And God is now blessed, perhaps, with a redemptive remarriage, and He's restored those lost and broken years. A lot like the prophet Joel says when he said, uh, the Lord will, will redeem and restore the years that the locusts have eaten. And a lot of us in the room today can look back with thanksgiving and say, God has been good, even in the aftermath of a marriage that ended. If you're joining us uh, for the first time, we are in a series on the Sermon on the Mount this summer. It's Matthew chapters 5 through 7, and uh, we're going to be walking through that uh, through these coming months as we, as we head through summer. It feels like summer's been going forever, right? But it is kind of just begun, and uh, we're, we're, not nearly, we're not even near the middle yet, but uh, a ways to go as we walk through chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew. And the section we're in right now in chapter 5 is where Jesus is contrasting the external righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees with the internal righteousness that God is actually after, what He's actually seeking from His people. And, and, and Jesus is announcing, this is what the kingdom of God is like, and this is what I desire my people to how I desire them to obey me and to walk in my ways and to relate to one another in positive, healthy ways that are the better ways of my kingdom and not the broken ways of this world. So he explains this contrast of righteousness uh, by doing uh, these six teachings, and, and theologians and scholars call, call these things the six antitheses. That's a big word, right? Well, you've heard the word thesis, right? So these, this is antithesis. This is the six antitheses that Jesus gives. And uh, last week we looked at anger and lust, this week divorce, and then there's three more that we'll look at next week. And uh, what he's doing in these is he's contrasting, as I said, what is the, the mode of the day with what God really thinks. And he says over and over again, you have heard it said, but I'm going to say to you something new and different. So there's a way of thinking that's been ingrained in you. It's been how you've been approaching life. It's how you've been thinking about keeping the law for perhaps all your years, and it's what your teachers have taught you. It's your way of thinking. But I'm bringing a new and deeper way of thinking. You used to think this, but now I'm telling you this. Again, last week, Pastor Brian talked about anger, and, and Jesus said, if you hate your brother, it's as though you murdered him. And we talked about lust and it said, 
hey, it's like even if you in your heart lust after somebody, that's the, in God's eyes like committing adultery. Heavy stuff. So today, divorce and remarriage. Are you ready? So we're going to read the passage, and then we're going to dive in. I'm going to invite my wife Brenda back up. Uh, She's going to read for us. If you want to be turning in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to jump around a little bit in the passage. Hi, Brenda. Hi. So we've been married 30 years next month, and uh, that's... I wasn't... (laughs) So you're sticking me with a really tough one to read. I wasn't trying to go for it, yeah, but... um, (laughs) That's kind of weird because that's like old people, it is. right? But, so, but we're, we're thankful, and uh, Brenda's going to read for us from Matthew yeah, chapter 5. So selections, like selections from Matthew chapter 5 relevant to our conversation today. Starting in verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then skipping down to verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And then verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. And good luck, honey. <laughs> That's right. As it's a bit of a mic drop that Jesus does there, right? Just a few short words about divorce and remarriage, and it kind of, boom, hits us right between the eyes. On the outset here, uh, two things I wanted to share. One, uh, just so you kind of know me, my, my style is more, pre- more teaching than preaching, and this subject matter itself is going, to re- is going to call for us to get kind of technical and do a little bit of deep, deep diving that way. So are you ready for that? Hopefully I won't put you to sleep by the technical side of it. It's also important to note on the onset that it's going to be impossible for us to cover this subject absolutely comp- comprehensively in the short time that we have today. We're going to do a deep dive for sure, but we don't have an oxygen tank on. We're just going, holding our breath, and then coming back up. It won't be, it won't be to look at absolutely everything. And I know there's going to be perhaps questions or circumstances uh, that we won't necessarily cover. I, I hope that'll, that'll just encourage you to keep seeking and, and do some additional research on your own. But we're going to unpack what Jesus says about divorce and remarriage. But before we get into those technical uh, sides of his teaching, a little bit more context and uh, it's, I think it's really helpful to frame uh, what, what Jesus is doing, once again, in all six of these antitheses statements that he's going to make. Uh, remember, he's going to keep on saying, you've heard this, but I tell you this. And the reason that I had Brenda read verses 17 through 21, which were actually uh, part of last week's message, and verse 48, which says, be perfect, 
uh, at the end of the chapter is because those, those words that Jesus says are, are critical to understanding each one of these six teachings that He's going to give. And here's the framework uh, that we want to have in mind as we read them. First, Jesus has come to fulfill the law. Brian mentioned that last week and really taught strongly on that. We can't keep the law. And Jesus didn't, he, he says, I didn't come to throw the law away. I came to fulfill it and to complete it for you and before the Father on behalf of all of humanity. Secondly, the law must not ever be relaxed, right? What Jesus is going to be teaching through here is what even sometimes we think of it as odd because we think the Pharisees are pretty amazing overachievers, but he's going to say that they've actually relaxed the law, and he's saying, "Uh uh-uh, you cannot cheat, and you cannot find a shortcut to righteousness. Third, uh, acceptable righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. So he's going to about to kind of take some shots at them and, and show how the way that they were modeling and the way that they were teaching was not only relaxing uh, the law, but it wasn't good enough righteousness to actually merit before the Father uh, eternal life. And then lastly, what we saw there at that very last verse, wow, God's standard is perfection or holiness. Now, that actually was not a new phrase to the people. A lot of what Jesus is, is saying uh, to his audience is, is kind of like shocker statements. When he said, you must be perfect as the heavenly Father is perfect, it's really a quote from Leviticus 19. So his audience would have been familiar with that phrase. Oh, yeah, the heavenly Father expects us to be holy and to be perfect. And yet they thought they were attaining that in the ways that they were keeping the law, even though they were relaxing it. So he's systematically walking through these illustrations then to show, as we've already said, that the Pharisees and the scribes are not cutting it and that the audience is not cutting it in terms of their righteousness uh, towards the Father. And again, kind of surprising, right? The the religious leaders of Jesus' time, we often think of them as being like super detailed in how they're keeping the law very meticulously and uh, kind of overachievers of holiness. But nope, says Jesus, you're missing the mark. And the the reality is when you start to dig in deep and you begin to discover some of those teachings, some of those uh, frameworks and formulas that the scribes and the Pharisees were setting up and and teaching to the people, they really were falling short of heart-level perfection, right? Not external perfection, but heart-level holiness and perfection. And in many instances, they were creating kind of workarounds and technicalities that, that, again, gave Looks good on the outside, but dark and ugly on the inside compared to God's standard of righteousness. These teachings of Jesus are kind of hard and amazing and and puzzling. Uh, They can be a challenge to us here 2,000 years after he gave them, and all the more they were startling and baffling to his audience at the time when he taught right there like real people in a real place in a real time when he gave this message. He was absolutely compelling and full of compassion and grace as he ministered his way towards the cross. But he was also radical, and he was controversial. A couple of quick scenes that illustrate that for us uh, from the Gospel of John. In John chapter 6, there's this moment where Jesus has just given a really difficult teaching about being the bread of life, and in order to live, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And the people were like, whoa, what's going on with this? And it said at that time that a lot of the people who had been following him stopped following him, right? And he looked at his disciples and he said, are you guys going to leave too? 
And they said, no, why, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life, even though it's hard teaching. The very next chapter, in John chapter 7, you see that the, um, the priests send the temple guards to go and arrest Jesus. So they go out and find him, and they're supposed to bring him back, you know, cuffed back to the temple. And they, they end up coming back kind of with their tail between their legs, and there's no Jesus. And the priests say, to, like, hey, weren't you supposed to go and arrest Jesus? Where is he? And they're like, you don't understand. Nobody talks like he talks right? So there's amazing things that Jesus is saying and teaching that are really kind of blowing the mind of his audience. We also know from John chapter 1 that he comes full of what? Grace and truth, full of grace and truth, the beautiful representation of the Father, God in the flesh, showing us true truth and true grace. But here's the deal. As we look at the Sermon on the Mount, particularly this section that we're in the middle of right now in, in, in Matthew chapter 5, there seems to be a whole lot of truth and not a lot of grace in the words. You catch that? Because it's like straight up, here's what's ha- he's like, here's what's happening about righteousness, and he's very strong and sober-minded in what he's saying about God's righteousness. The grace doesn't seem to be there at face value. However, we'll find that when we interpret and apply these teachings in the, re- in the light of the rest of the story, and by the rest of the story I mean the cross and the resurrection, we'll begin to find that grace really is abounding right alongside these hard truths that Jesus is teaching. That's a critical clue for how we look at it and read it. Because we've got to remember this. Jesus had not yet gone to the cross, obviously, when he's doing this teaching to this audience. They're Old Testament people still. Uh, they're, they're unaware of the, of the redemption of the Messiah. Uh, they're still mindset, keep the law, keep the law, keep the law. And so he's speaking in that context. Um, and as we look at, at these kinds of clues, there's another thing uh, to keep in mind as we come to the Scriptures. And I like to say this, that whenever you read your Bible, you're actually engaging in a time travel cross-cultural activity, Right? You're going back 2,000 years to a culture that doesn't speak your language and has completely different ways of thinking, and it's across both time and culture. And so it's, it's, uh, it takes some unique work to get past just the words and to begin to unpack it. Because as we interpret our Bibles, absolutely we do the hard work of saying, what does it say? What are the words? What do the words mean? But we don't stop there. We also include who was the original audience that this was being said to? And what was, in, what was in their heads? What were they thinking about? What was already sort of naturally and automatically in their way of thinking that we don't see in, the, in just the face value of the words that are there? And we're going to find here in a minute that the, uh, the audience that Jesus was delivering these words about divorce to had some very specific things going on in their heads that we need to bring to bear as we interpret uh, what he's given. Okay? So, here we go. Uh, Jesus begins this one uh, just like he did the first two. You have heard it said, but I'm going to say to you, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. That's the Mosaic Law. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Wow. There's a pretty concise statement here, but uh, we want to keep in mind that Jesus also gives this teaching later in Matthew chapter 19, and he says more there. It's a broader passage. There's more, more discussed, and we want to keep 
both of those in front of us uh, as we consider what his teaching actually means on divorce. And in Matthew 19, they actually come to him and say, hey, Jesus, is it legitimate for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And they also uh, then kind of like say, there's two choices. It can be tight or it can be narrow. Which one are you? And he ends up giving a very high view of marriage at first saying, God's plan is that it's forever. But when they press him on it, he says the exception that's the same one he gives here. In the case of immorality, a divorce is allowed because of our hard hearts. And in both cases, Jesus is addressing both the Old Testament law, what it says about divorce, and what we just covered a minute ago. He is covering what the people had in their hearts and mind. What was the contemporary understanding about divorce and remarriage? So, when he first says, you've heard it said, and he gives the statement about the certificate of the divorce, uh, he's actually looking, and they all knew this, to Deuteronomy chapter 24. And uh, here's what that verse says, uh, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found, this is the key word, some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, and he puts it in her hand, and he sends her out of his house, and he parts of his house, and then it kind of goes on and on and on into some other things in that passage. But the key phrase in there is some indecency. And uh, the big deal when Jesus began to give this teaching was that there were two sort of competing and yet coexisting schools of thought about what some indecency meant in Deuteronomy chapter 24. They each had their own set of parameters of what was going to constitute an okay divorce or a not okay divorce. And remarkably, each of the two camps at Jesus' time also recognized the decision of the other. So that if you, if you got a divorce in one or the other, they would, they would both consider that to be legitimate, even though they had radically different views of what was actually allowed by the text. And it all centered, as I said, around this idea of what does it mean when Deuteronomy says some indecency. A different translation of that might be a matter of indecency. The, the, the Hebrew phrase actually says in, in absolute literalness, nakedness of anything is what the Hebrew says in Deuteronomy chapter 24. So you had these two schools, they were called Shammai and Hillel, uh, named after the two rabbis that represented each one. So you have this guy named Rabbi Shammai, and you have this guy named Rabbi Hillel, and they each had interpretations of that Old Testament passage that we just looked at. Now, the Shammai school was what we would consider the conservatives, and so they would, they would have looked at that passage for Deuteronomy and, and had a really more narrow view of what a matter of indecency actually meant. And they would have seen it as a substantial violation of the covenant of marriage that would then result in writing that certificate of divorce. And then remarriage would be available for both parties once it happened. So they would have matter of indecency as their uh, parameter for divorce. The other school was from Rabbi Hillel, and uh, we, might have think, we might think of them as the progressives. Uh, so this was a group uh, that really took matter of indecency and separated the word matter from the word indecency, and they said, you could get a divorce for either indecency or a matter. And so like 
anything goes was how it kind of went for the school of Hillel. It could be certainly uh, infidelity would, could lead to a divorce, but so could just about anything else because it, it says a matter. So they would interpret a matter to mean just about anything. The example that's often given of this to our sensibilities sounds kind of like sexist in terms of like the roles of husbands and wives, but it's often said that the way this would work out for the school of Hillel is if the wife was cooking dinner and she was a bad cook and she burned the dinner, the husband could divorce her. It could be something that trite and that small. Any reason was an opportunity for the marriage to end. Now, you remember what we said a minute ago, we don't have this in Matthew chapter 5, but in Matthew chapter 19, they asked him, could, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? Now you begin to see they were talking about that Hillel interpretation of what divorce and remarriage was allowed. Now back to Deuteronomy 24, I want to make a mention of the certificate because we've mentioned that a couple of times. So you have this matter of indecency, but you also have this phrase, a certificate of divorce. And this is like really important and it's really amazing what God has provided for, uh, for those who are oppressed and those who are powerless in difficult situations. The legal certificate was actually given for two reasons. One, it would, it would slow down the process of, of a marriage ending so that, it would, so that it was like taken very seriously. And then all the more than that, uh, it was to protect the wife who was being divorced so that she had this legal document whereby she could legitimately get remarried. And what that was is an amazing protection for her so that she wouldn't have financial ruin, that so she could have a life on the other side of this marriage ending, and she'd be protected against like, like really real and really nasty, nefarious things happening, like her husband sends her away, she has a new family, she has new children, she has new resources, that husband comes back and takes it all. Like that, in, in that culture, that could have happened if there wasn't this certificate that really made the, the case that this was legitimate and it gave her some really amazing protections. And uh, our God is that way towards those who are the oppressed and the powerless and his heart is towards them. So uh, this is why in our text from Matthew chapter 5, it so emphatically says if you, if you marry, a, if, a, if a man uh, divorces his wife for the wrong reason, he causes her to commit adultery, is the idea that in biblical times, remarriage also was assumed to follow a divorce, right? So in our, in our times, uh, we, we, we kind of separate the two issues. There's divorce, and then after that, a new question, will remarriage happen? But in the biblical times and in the context where Jesus is, is speaking to this crowd here, it's assumed that they go hand in hand. It would have been bizarre in the minds of his listeners to imagine a divorce occurring without a remarriage then ensuing. And so when Jesus says, hey, you're going to cause your wife to commit adultery if you've, if you've, uh, if you've uh, divorced her for an illegitimate reason, he's assuming that remarriage is going to happen. A lot of times in our, in our culture, not only are we not as individuals necessarily choosing remarriage when a marriage ends, um, but we're also parsing out which one is okay. And sometimes churches have, have told their people, well, in this particular circumstance, it's okay for you to be divorced, but you can't get remarried. And that wasn't really part of the, of the thinking of the time of Jesus. And all the teachings from the Scripture really assume that whenever divorce is legitimate, remarriage is also legitimate. They both go together. They're not separate issues.
okay? Uh, so we have Shammai and Hillel, back to our two rabbis and the two schools of thought. There was a court for each one. Uh, interestingly, you, uh, we could see these sort of one-dimensionally, like one's good and one's bad, but they, they had some interplay as well. And you think back to, remember when Joseph finds out Mary's pregnant and he says he's going to divorce her quietly or privately? He was probably going to use the Hillel courts for that. Uh, he had, a, he had a, a good legitimate reason for ending his betrothal to Mary because she's obviously pregnant, right? Uh, but he was going to use the Hillel courts, presumably, because that would have been quiet. He would have been able to honor her. It would, have been, it would have been handled sort of like off to the side, whereas the Shammai courts would have made a big public deal about it, right? So what Jesus is teaching here uh, clearly aligns with which one? The Shammai. He's aligning with the Shammai class or school of understanding divorce and saying it is not legitimate to pursue divorce for any old reason. It's only for a true matter of indecency. But that's just the first layer of the Old Testament, and there's more we need to look at. Uh, Because where does this leave us? The exception clause that Jesus gives is translated uh, from the Greek into English here in Matthew chapter 5 as sexual immorality. So, that begs the question, is actual infidelity the only violation of the covenant that God sees as legitimate for divorce? And I would dare say that uh, in, in our room here today and online, a part of our Grace Spring family, there are divorces and remarriages in this church family that have occurred for reasons other than only infidelity. So, what about perpetual cruelty and what about physical and emotional abuse and what about neglect? What about abandonment? What about a divorce that you didn't want, but it happened to you anyway? And what about a divorce before you were even a Christian, and then you found Christ, and now what? And the list can kind of go on and on of potential circumstances. So we looked at Deuteronomy 24, but there's another passage that also came into play in the time of Jesus and for his audience, and that was from Exodus chapter 21. And it says this, If he, meaning a husband, takes another wife to himself... He shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Now, this is kind of a bizarre passage uh, that is in the context of slavery and having multiple wives, stuff that we don't have time to fully unpack today that's, that's really to us incredibly bizarre. Um, But nonetheless, these are the three responsibilities of husbands that are given for the protection of their wives. They are to not fail to provide food, clothing, and marital rights. A husband was bound by the marriage covenant to not fail to provide them. And if not, that covenant could be determined to be violated and broken, and the offended wife would be free to remarry. So those three parameters became the defining framework alongside of this matter of indecency uh, for understanding what constituted divorce in, the, in early Judaism here at the time of Christ. And they would take that idea of food, clothing, and love, marital rights, and they would put it into the two categories of material neglect and emotional ad- neglect. And so this conservative understanding that the school of Shammai had for divorce and remarriage would have given these as the parameters for a, a, a legal and legitimate divorce. It could be the actual infidelity, but it could also be material neglect or emotional neglect. Uh, 
This is a big deal here also, as we've already kind of hinted at, regarding power and powerlessness. In biblical times, it was the husband who had all the power, and the laws gave necessary protections for the dismissed wives. Only the man could uh, initiate the divorce, but the wife could certainly bring her case and have the courts cause one to happen. So she did have recourse, even though she couldn't pull the trigger. In our time and culture, things are different. Either the husband or the wife could find them, be, find them to be the, the person who's powerless, the person who's uh, oppressed and, uh, and being sinned against. And in our world, either the husband or the wife can seek a divorce. And certainly these biblical parameters of emotional neglect and physical neglect and infidelity would apply across time and space to our world. So I would propose that Jesus was affirming all of these reasons when he gave that exception clause, when he said, uh, you cannot divorce except for a matter of indecency or a matter of sexual immorality. Uh, he was, his audience at the time would have understood the, the larger, broader scope of that, and he would be saying no to the Hillel school, where you can just do it for any reason, and he would be saying yes to the Shammai school that said there are these very poignant, very real reasons where people are sinning against each other, where there's a, there's a, a reason for escape and a provision for a future outside and, and protection to come. This would also align with uh, Paul's teaching. The Apostle Paul would write about marriage in, in, to the Corinthians, and uh, he would say that, yeah, divorce is available not, not only on the grounds of sexual immorality, uh, but also for neglect or abandonment. And we certainly wouldn't expect Paul to disagree with Jesus. These things are taken in harmony and brought together to get the full picture of what the New Testament teaches about divorce and remarriage. Glassing over, that's a lot of detail, right? A lot of technical. Thanks for going on that journey with me into all that stuff. It's important for us to know, to really understand what Jesus is getting at here. Now, zooming it back out, big deal. This is not to relax the ultimate raised bar view of marriage that Jesus was going for, right? We've talked about all the, the things that make it okay for, one, for a marriage to end, but in the larger deal, Jesus is really making a big point in both, both Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 to say, God's heart towards marriage and what I desire of you as my followers and what he desires from his people is to have his mind, his heart, his really high view of marriage and to contend for it as being something that's intended to be lifelong and in faithfulness between a man and a woman. And God's ultimate will is that no marriage would ever end. That's the ideal, right? That's that standard of perfection of the kingdom of God that Jesus is championing here. And remember, so when Jesus is giving this teaching, he's saying, you can't relax the law. I'm raising the bar on this. Um, he's dropping the gauntlet down in front of the scribes and Pharisees and saying, your righteousness, the way you're doing it, isn't enough. It's not good enough. And he's, he's saying that the Heavenly Father expects us to be holy, expects us to be perfect as he is perfect. But in his grace, Jesus also knows that we are living in a very broken and dangerous world where people mistreat and sin against one another in ways that create the need for protection of divorce and remarriage. And he also knows that we have hard hearts. That's what he says in Matthew 19. We have these, these provisions also because, you know what? Our hearts are just hard. So there are provisions for ending a marriage and 
perhaps a beautiful remarriage on the other side. But hear him clearly call us to a higher and a better way. God's heart and his intent for marriage is that it's a, is that it's a lifelong covenant where selfishness is set aside and where unconditional love is on display for the whole world to see so that we as husbands and wives live displaying what God's love is actually like, forgiving and unconditional and selfless, even though sometimes the circumstances are trying. In his book, The Sacred Marriage, author Gary Thomas uh, poses this idea that God's purpose for marriage isn't to make you happy, right? It's to make you holy. See the difference? We're not, we're not uh, ultimately uh, given the opportunity to live as a family with a husband and wife so that individually we can each be happy. There's a lot of happiness bound up in it for sure. It's not absent happiness, but the ultimate purpose is not happiness. The ultimate purpose is that we are formed into the image of Christ and made holy as we live together as husbands and wives. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 19, what God, and you've heard this at weddings, right? What God has joined together, let no man separate. Because his view of marriage is that big of a deal. And really, honestly, it's what every divorced person actually expected at the front end, right? To, no one expected it to end when they said, I do, with their spouse. And they had hoped for and intended to have on the other side. Seem impossible? <laughs> right? The disciples thought so. When Jesus gave this teaching in Matthew 19, the disciples said, wow, if that's what it's like for marriage, it's better not to get married. <laughs> right? Jesus raises the bar on righteousness in every way, including what, it's, what it means to be husband and wife together. Seem impossible? Uh-huh. It is impossible in our own strength. And there are three more antitheses teachings that we're going to cover next week that are also impossible. And that's the point. So what are we to do with this? There are, there are two things, both of which I think are matters of belief before matters of doing. And uh, this is a really important application idea to me as I, anytime I'm teaching the Word of God. When you read your Bible, I believe the first thing it's inviting you to do is to believe something long before it's asking you to go do something. Here, right here in America, we're super quick to be like, read my Bible, what should I do? Right? What's it telling me to do? But pause first. What God's Word is calling you to do when you encounter it, whether it's being preached to you or whether you're quietly reading it at home or listening to it, however you're intaking God's Word, it's first inviting you to believe something, to have your mind changed about something and conformed to the mind of Christ. As, you, as your belief begins to be formed and changed, then you start to become something different, and then you can go do what the Lord wants you to do or live in the ways that the Lord wants you to live. So two things uh, in our response time uh, that are, I believe this text is calling us to, to believe. First, believe what Jesus believes about marriage and about divorce and remarriage. We, need, we uh, invite God's Word to allow us uh, to have our minds transformed and renewed so that we start to think with the mind of Christ. It's an amazing gift that He gives us. And we start to have God's heart for marriage. This is the supernatural work that God's Word does as His 
Spirit applies it to our hearts, and we start to think in ways that are different than the ways we used to think. Remember, Jesus said, you used to think this, but I say, think this. And God's Word can, can transform us that way so that we have His mind and His heart. Sometimes part of that mind change, that change of belief, is the need for repentance. And, uh, you know, we think of repentance as confessing something, but it's way bigger than that. Repentance means changing your mind, right? And so God's Word invites us to change our mind, to think His thoughts instead of ours about marriage. So maybe you've had a low view of marriage, and you need God's Word today by His Spirit to renew you so that you begin to see and think about it the way He does. Maybe you're someone whose past marriage actually ended for reasons that were a lot more like the school of Hillel instead of the school of Shammai, and you had a, you had a anything, any reason, way, reason that your marriage ended. And maybe because of that, you're wondering today if God's angry with you. Hear this. Jesus came full of both grace and truth. The truth is real, but the grace is every bit as real. And God's forgiveness is utter and complete. And in the Bible, he says, he remembers our sins no more. Takes them from us as far as east is from the west. He has compassion on us and is forgiving. And God's will for you now is to live in either your new marriage or your new state of singleness in a way that honors him with a transformed mind and heart moving forward in his provision of grace. And if you find yourself today in a marriage that is struggling, uh, we would implore you to have Jesus' mind towards that and his heart towards that as well and contend for it. Contend for lifelong faithfulness. Work hard and fight for it. Seek help and seek reconciliation where it might be possible. And yet, if you are in danger and if your spouse is sinning against you in ways where there's legitimacy for you to seek protection, please know that the very same God who wills that no marriage should ever end has also made provision where there's a need for release due to our sinful and broken world. Second thing for us to believe today. Jesus is our righteousness. We are not our own righteousness. There's good news and there's bad news all the time, right? The bad news is we cannot live up to these standards we've been talking about on our own. But the good news, good news is, is that Jesus knows that we can't. Remember way back to the beginning, who fulfills the law? Us? No. Jesus fulfills the law for us. We can't and we don't. C.S. Lewis was once criticized for saying he actually liked Paul better than Jesus' teaching. <laughs> How'd you like to get that criticism, right? Because the Sermon on the Mount's kind of tough. And he said this kind of crazy quote, as to caring for the Sermon on the Mount, if caring for it means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one cares for it. Who can, not, who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? I can hardly a man more a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read that passage with tranquil pleasure, <laughs> right? How do we deal with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and these teachings that call us to be perfect to a seemingly unreachable standard? On our own, guess what? We're hopeless and condemned. That's the bad news, and that's Jesus' point. 
But he fulfills the law for us, and by faith we can be forgiven and we can be credited with his perfect righteousness. And when Jesus Jesus finishes chapter 5 by saying, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, he is in a way leaving us hanging. He left his original audience hanging at that point. What he knew in that moment when he said those words, but had not yet revealed to that group he was talking to, was that the cross and the resurrection were coming, right? The cross and the resurrection were coming. Not too many years later, the Apostle Paul would pen amazing words in his letter to the Romans that would say, nobody attains righteousness by keeping the law. Instead, the very purpose of the law is to show us what our sin is like, to make us aware of our sin. And it actually says that the law becomes a guide that shows us the way to Jesus. It's not the way that we become righteousness, we attain righteousness. It's the guide that shows us a way to the one who gives us righteousness that he obtains where we can't. I want to invite you guys to read this verse then that Paul culminates with at the end of that time where he says, you cannot become righteous by keeping the law. And this is a beautiful statement about righteousness that comes by faith, not from the law. Can you read this out loud with me? But now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Wow. Can you say amen to that passage? This is the gospel and it is such good news. If if you've been a Christian for many years, I hope that still grabs your heart and stirs you to realize I'm not expected to do this on my own merits. Jesus has done it for me. For others, maybe you're hearing this for the very first time or it's clicking for the very first time to realize God doesn't actually expect me to perform and and to live up to these impossible standards. As Brian mentioned last week, Religion calls you to, to, to do and to perform and to attain righteousness on your own, but Christianity is different than that. Christianity recognizes that the standards are unattainable and it gives a glorious workaround. Instead of expecting us to perform perfection, Jesus, God's one and only Son, showed up on earth full of grace and truth. He became human. He walked amid all of our brokenness. And he radically raised that bar of righteousness. And then he fulfilled it for us by perfectly performing on our behalf. And he paid for our sins on the cross. And he rose again for our justification. Justification means we are given his righteousness. And when we read, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, the heavenly father sees us as perfect because of Jesus not because we did it right. How do we get that righteousness? Not by keeping the law. It's a free gift to those who believe. So maybe today's the day for you to believe this for the very first time and to embrace that gift of righteousness that the Father so desires to lavish on you through his Son, Jesus Christ. And I would invite you to even right where you are to ask the Lord for forgiveness for sins, and to accept that free gift of righteousness that he offers today. For all of us, we're going to enter into a time now so appropriate uh, to take the bread and cup together in communion and celebrate 
that glorious truth that a righteousness apart from law has come. The law pointed at it, but it was just a guide. And we have, through our belief in Jesus Christ, complete forgiveness, complete grace alongside the truths we've been looking at. In a moment, I'll invite you to stand, and there are, there are tables both front and back where you can go and get bread and get cup. Uh, and I'd like to invite you to hold on to those, bring them back to your seats, and then when we're all together again, we'll eat together and we'll drink together in unity. But let me pray, and then we'll go to our tables. Lord Jesus, thank you for your words that are so powerful and true. Thank you for the high view of marriage that you call us to. Thank you ultimately for your grace poured out so that we might have your very righteousness. And as we now celebrate grace and truth by taking the bread and the cup, I pray that you'll remind us of the full extent of your love. And for anybody in the room today who for the first time is having the light come on in their heart and their mind about your grace, I pray that you'll draw them to true faith and belief today uh, as we have your word so richly dwell in our hearts. Thank you for your your kindness to us. And now uh, give us your favor, please, as we eat bread and drink cup together. In Jesus' name.